0: This is not your century. This is not your century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. September 2nd, 2019, Labor Day, and I hope you're listening to this as part of the day off from your labors. What I like to do on holidays is present the best of Not Your Century, where I collect several episodes and give you a little more to listen to as you drive to the beach or whatever it is you do on your days off. It's a little gambit I invented to save myself some work, and it didn't work because it's more work than a usual episode, but that's okay. I like doing it. So here we go. The Labor Day theme is labor. I'm a member of the Pacific Media Workers Local 39521 of the News Guild, part of the Communication Workers of America And today I've got four episodes that are about work or workers or organized labor. And we're going to take them in chronological order. That means we're going to start in 1894. We're going to go through 1975. We start with Coxie's Army. This was almost 70 years before the most famous one. It was the first March on Washington. Later on, you'll hear about the prehistoric Google bus in the 60s, a civil rights demonstration at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, and the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. Let's start in 1894 with Coxey's Army. It's a march on Washington, the first one ever, and some of the marchers have stolen a freight train near Butte, Montana. April 25, 1894. The Butte contingent of Coxey's army is sailing toward the national capital over the Northern Pacific Railroad at the rate of 40 miles an hour, the Chronicle reports. So who was Coxey, And why did he have an army? And why were they marching on Washington? They were an army of the unemployed. There was a depression on, the Panic of 1893. Jake Coxey owned a farm and a quarry in Massillon, Ohio. He'd previously worked for years in the iron mills. So he knew the economy from the point of view of worker, owner, and farmer. And he thought he had the answer to the country's economic woes. He wanted the federal government to embark on a program of public works, mostly in the form of building roads. And he wanted Washington to finance this program by issuing $500 million in paper money, backed by government bonds. That's about $14.5 billion today. He was really into paper money. His son was named Legal Tender Coxey. His idea was to put the masses of unemployed to work, improve the nation's infrastructure, and pump money into the faltering economy. It was pretty much the New Deal, 40 years before the New Deal. Coxey had another idea that was novel for the time, that the way to get things done wasn't to get elected to Congress, but to go to Congress, the one that's serving now, and demand action. Thus, the march. Coxey started with 100 men in Massillon and headed east. Other groups formed in other parts of the country, and they too started for Washington. And in one case, they did it by stealing a freight train in Butte, Montana. That group, mostly unemployed railroad workers, was led by a guy named William Hogan. They had a lot of local support. The marshal wanted to chase them down, but he couldn't get any deputies to go with him at first. The next day, the marshals were organized enough to catch up with the train at Billings. The Hogan contingent was 600 strong, riding on 16 freight cars. Westbound passenger trains had pulled off the tracks for hours at a time to avoid a collision. Now, there was a confrontation. The marshals tried to capture the engine. Here's the Chronicle report. The engineer, though under cover of rifles, refused to leave the cab when bang! Ten or a dozen times went the rifles. The Coxeyites charged the marshals and disarmed them. The deputies retreated, firing their pistols. They hit a couple of marchers, but no one was killed. The deputies were lucky to avoid a violent death, the dispatch said. The people of Billings lavished the marchers with food and supplies. Hogan's men commandeered a fresh engine and headed east. The next day, they were stopped for the night at Forsyth, Montana, when an infantry force of 250 surprised them as they slept. The marchers were captured without a fight. The leaders were arrested, and everybody else was set free. And the rest of Coxey's army continued its march on Washington. But the long march, most of it an actual march, not a 40-mile-an-hour ride on a stolen train, well, the march took its toll. People faded away. Coxey reached Washington at the end of April. He was arrested for walking on the grass at the Capitol building, and that was pretty much that. Coxey organized another march in 1914. He wasn't arrested that time. He gave a speech on the Capitol steps. He had a long career of running for the House and Senate, losing every time, but he was elected mayor of Massillon in 1931. He died in 1951, at the age of 97. Coxie's Army inspired the saying, enough food to feed Coxie's Army, which I've never heard. I took a little survey of more than a dozen people I know, many of them writers and editors, some of them quite a bit older than me, and none of them had ever heard of it either, but it used to be a saying. It means way more food than you're going to need, because Coxie's Army was small by the time it reached D.C. There's a school of thought that Coxie's Army with its long march to the capital city to confront the powers that be, inspired a novel that was published six years later. It was called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. One of my favorite things about diving around in the newspaper archives for this show is finding old news stories that are like precursors of things that are happening now. I think we have a tendency to think that everything's new and different all the time, and I just love it when I find something where it's like, oh, this same thing happened before, or this has been going on a lot longer than I thought. And this is my favorite example of that, the prehistoric Google bus. Imagine my surprise when I discovered, completely by accident, I just happened to cross it in the archives, a story from 1962 about a controversy involving a bunch of workers at a peninsula tech firm commuting on a private bus. You know about the Google bus, right? Private luxury buses that take workers from the city to Google and other big tech companies on the peninsula, there have been protests against them for years. People object to the buses using civic assets like muni bus stops, and they're also a symbol, an emblem of gentrification and wealth inequality. Did you know that fights over private luxury buses for peninsula commuters aren't new? April 19, 1962. Charles Maisel was a science editor at the Stanford Research Lab in Menlo Park, but he lived in Sausalito. It wasn't working for him to take the bus on his commute, so he resorted to a carpool with some co-workers. But after a near accident one day in 1960, the group decided they'd had enough. They recruited a bunch more co-workers, and they chartered a luxury bus from a little company called Bayshore Lines in Belmont. The price? $50 a day. Each rider pitched in a buck fifteen. The inflation calculator says that's about nine and a half dollars in today's money. Why not just move closer to the job? None of us want to live down there, Mazel said. We're all ardent peninsula haters. Besides, he said, it's a fine way to commute. You can lean back in your reclining seat in the air conditioned bus and travel in comfort. The paper showed Maisel with his feet up, reading a book. There was no Wi-Fi, but it was okay. They didn't know what they were missing. The commuters nicknamed their bus the Wayward Bus. Naturally, noted the Chronicle. I guess that seemed obvious at the time. The Wayward Bus was a John Steinbeck novel that had been made into a movie a few years before, starring Joan Collins and Jane Mansfield. Who doesn't love literature? The Wayward Bus had been operating for a year and a half, and it was working out great for the commuters and great for Bayshore Lines. The company owned seven buses, and one of them was booked five days a week, guaranteed. So who was unhappy? Pacific Greyhound Lines, owner of 1,534 buses, 1,527 more than Bayshore, and also owner of exclusive rights to commuter bus service on the peninsula. Greyhound barked to the Public Utilities Commission demanding that it shut down the rogue Bayshore Charter. Mazel said he thought Greyhound was adopting a dog-in-the-manger attitude. Had to look that up. It refers to a fable about someone who has no use for a thing but doesn't want you to have it either. He said the commuters could have used Greyhound before and didn't, even though it was cheaper. They weren't going to start using it now. And they certainly weren't going to take Greyhound up on its offer to charter a bus to them for $80 a month, $30 more than they were paying to Bayshore. In other words, Greyhound would gain nothing by stopping Bayshore. So a hearing was scheduled for that day to consider Bayshore's application for an operating certificate on the peninsula. At the hearing, a commissioner asked Bayshore's owner if he really wanted that certificate. He said, no, not really. I just want to keep running this one bus. He said he made a nice profit, $12 a day. The commuters got up and said nice things about Bayshore, and they said not nice things about Greyhound. And one of them got up and said, you know, if there were more commuters here, they'd say nice things about Bayshore and not nice things about Greyhound too. The commission gave Greyhound a chance to round up some friendly witnesses of its own for a later hearing. That hearing happened in June, and instead of bringing friendly witnesses, maybe it couldn't find any, Greyhound brought a deal. Bayshore could keep running that one line if it agreed to stick to running just the one bus for one round trip a day, and if the commission agreed that Bayshore was a common carrier, not a charter service. Everybody agreed, and the wayward bus continued on its merry way. We're just going to jump ahead two years now, from 1962 to 1964, and a civil rights protest at the Palace Hotel on Market Street in San Francisco. It fits our theme of work and workers and labor because what the protesters were demanding was an end to racist hiring practices at every hotel in the city. Peace at Palace. That was the big headline sprayed across page one of the San Francisco Chronicle on March 8, 1964. 167 civil rights demonstrators had been arrested at the Sheraton Palace Hotel on Market Street. It was the biggest mass arrest in San Francisco history. The anti-Vietnam protests hadn't kicked in yet. And now, the protests were over. The demonstrators had won. The Ad Hoc Committee to End Discrimination had been picketing for two days to force San Francisco hotels to agree to fair hiring practices. Comedian Dick Gregory was there. The Chronicle referred to him as ubiquitous. Mayor John Shelley called together the San Francisco Hotel Employers Association and the protesters to negotiate a settlement. At 3.30 Saturday morning, the 7th, as hundreds of demonstrators hung around the palace lobby, the announcement came. No deal. That's when the demonstrators' young leaders called on picketers to block the doors, a move that would invite police action. This was against the counsel of their older advisors, including Terry Francois, the NAACP leader, who would soon become the first black member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Warren Hinkle, who would spend the next five years as the editor of the leftist Ramparts magazine, wrote this lead in a sidebar in the Chronicle. This is what it was like in the palace at 4 a.m. yesterday, James Greer, the 42-year-old owner of a medical supply firm in North Hollywood, stood arms akimbo at the edge of a solid block of some 250 pickets, squatting in the carriage entrance to the Sheraton Palace Hotel. I want to get out, he yelled. Are you going to let me out? No, the pickets roared back. Nobody gets out. The mass arrests followed. Among those taken in, future San Francisco District Attorney Terrence K. O'Hallinans, then a law student at Hastings College, and another student, 21-year-old Mario Savio of Berkeley, who six months later would emerge as a leader of the free speech movement. The gambit worked. On Saturday morning, Mayor Shelley announced an agreement between the demonstrators and the city's 33 biggest hotels. The agreement ran in full in the paper. Here was its most important clause. The policy of the association is that employee selection and promotion respecting all job categories are determined solely upon the basis of the qualifications of the individual for the job in question, without reference to race or color. The Chronicle's George Draper wrote a profile of the leader of the Ad Hoc Committee to End Discrimination. Her name was Tracy Sims, and she was 18 years old. She graduated from Berkeley High School and then dropped out of SF State after one semester to focus on her civil rights work. Draper wrote that she was serious, rarely smiled, and often talked the way a tough soldier talks about battles. This was the fifth time she'd been arrested in a demonstration, but she said she didn't think the number of arrests proved sincerity. Consistently showing up and doing the work, she said, that's what's important. Not just being there when the action is hot. Tracy Sims said the protesters' decision to get arrested was a good one. I don't think the arrests are detrimental to our cause, she said. I think they show everyone that the fervor for civil rights has finally struck the North. After the agreement was read and Sims shouted, we got everything we asked for, the demonstrators carried her out of the Palace Hotel on their shoulders. She showed the effects of 50 hours without sleep, the Chronicle reported. She wept. According to blackpast.org, Tracy Sims never again participated in civil rights protests. She moved to New York later in 1964, graduated from Rutgers, and spent 25 years as a teacher in Newark, New Jersey. She's now known as Tamam Tracy Moncur. In 2008, she published a memoir, Diary of an Inner City Teacher. All right, I mentioned that organized labor was going to be one of the subjects, and we've arrived at our last episode in this Labor Day Best of Not Your Century. It's 1975, and it's the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. He was the former president of the Teamsters Union, and it doesn't get much more labor union-y than that. Jimmy Hoffa has disappeared. He's missing. He's still missing. But the day he disappeared was July 30th, 1975. Jimmy Hoffa was the former president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the nation's largest and most powerful union. He was trying to regain control of the union, which he'd lost after going to prison in 1967 on fraud and bribery charges. He went to a restaurant called the Red Fox in Bloomfield Township in the Detroit suburbs. He was having a meeting with Tony Jack and Tony Pro, Anthony Giacalone and Anthony Provenzano, a pair of mobsters. Tony Jack was a capo in the Detroit crime family. Tony Pro was a capo in the Genovese crime family in New York. And a former national vice president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, a Hoffa ally turned enemy. The meeting was set for 2 p.m. Over the next hour and a half, Hoffa was seen pacing outside his car in the parking lot, and he made a series of payphone calls to his wife and associates, complaining that the men he was supposed to meet were late. He was being stood up and that was the last anybody ever heard from Jimmy Hoffa. The next morning, his wife called their grown son and daughter to say he hadn't come home. Hoffa's car was found in the parking lot, unlocked, but undisturbed. The cops, the state police, and the FBI announced that there was no foul play, and the FBI said they had no reason to join in the investigation. The Hoffa family thought there was a reason. A family spokesman said, if Jimmy hasn't turned up by now, he's dead. We're praying for a ransom note, but we have to face the facts. Jimmy Hoffa was born in Indiana, but raised in Detroit. He left school at 14 and began working for a grocery store chain that treated its employees badly. He got involved in organizing efforts by the workers, and he quickly rose to a leadership position. He caught the eye of Teamster's Local 299, which hired him as an organizer in 1932, when he was 19. Hoffa had never been a truck driver, but he was a great organizer, strategist, and leader, and he played a big role in consolidating local trucker associations into a national framework. Teamster's membership boomed over the next quarter century. That might have happened anyway, even if Hoffa had never existed. The trucking industry was coming into its own, and the economy was booming during and after World War II. But he did exist, and he was a powerhouse. He became the president of the Teamsters in 1957 in the wake of his predecessor, Dave Beck, going to prison on fraud charges. The labor leaders were in the crosshairs of the Senate Labor Rackets Committee and its chief counsel, Robert F. Kennedy. And I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. I don't go for that kind of action. Well, then you could have... uh... Arrange that, not going for that kind of action, by disassociating yourself many years ago from Joe Costello. Why? You could have done it from Mr. John Kennedy. Vitale. Every place you go, we've checked your telephone numbers, you're calling every gangster in the United States. Mr. Kennedy. In 1961, Kennedy was appointed attorney general by the new president, his brother. He went after organized crime, and part of that meant going after Hoffa. The feds finally got their man in 1964. Hoffa was convicted of bribing a grand juror in Nashville and of using Teamsters' pensions as a slush fund to pay off mobsters. He got 13 years, and he went to prison in Pennsylvania in 1967 when his appeals were exhausted. In 1971, President Richard Nixon commuted his sentence to time served. In what may have been a coincidence, but may not have been, the traditionally Democratic Teamsters supported Nixon for re-election in 1972. But Hoffa had a problem. The terms of his parole prevented him from engaging in union activities until 1980. He was fighting that in court and trying to regain control of the Detroit local again when he had his fateful meeting, or lack of meeting, with Tony Jack and Tony Pro. Both of them had threatened Hoffa in the past, and this meeting had been offered as a peace summit. What happened to Jimmy Hoffa became one of the great mysteries of the 20th century, a companion to the Amelia Earhart mystery. One popular theory had him buried beneath one of the end zones at Giant Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey, which was being built when he disappeared. Even as a kid, that one struck me as stupid. Professional hitmen killed a guy in Detroit and buried him 600 miles away? There was no good place to dump a body between Detroit and New Jersey? And they put him under the field? There were miles of concrete they could have lost him in, but they put him in the one place that might be dug up. They replace playing fields, you know. Over the years, there have been dozens of rumors and claims by people who say they know what happened or they heard someone talking about what happened, but nothing's ever panned out. Jimmy Hoffa was officially declared dead in 1982, but he's still missing. Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance wraps up this Labor Day best of Not Your Century, and it provides a perfect kickoff for the rest of this week because it's 70s week. All 1970s, all the time for the rest of the week on Not Your Century. Tell your friends, and I really mean that. If you're still listening, I'm going to guess you had a pretty good time, and I'm going to ask you for a favor go get on social media, tell your friends about Not Your Century. Have them give it a listen, subscribe to it, you know, that whole drill. And, it, you know, if it's your jam, you can tell them in person too. I mean, I think that's a little weird talking to people in real life, but you do you. Or you can write a review on your favorite podcast app. Why not do all of these things? Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support of Not Your Century. And we'll talk tomorrow for 70s week. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, editor-in-chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your century.